Welcome back to Full Disclosure by Pop Sugar, a new podcast that tackles sex and reproductive health unapologetically, presented by Anna Vera. I'm your host, Francesca Ramsey, and in today's episode, we're diving into a topic often overlooked the importance of female pleasure. And let's be real, it's overlooked because some folks don't know where to look. This episode of Full Disclosure by Pop Sugar is presented by Anavera, Suggesterone Acetate and Ethanol Estradiol Vaginal System. I don't want to give you all these fluffy ass words. I want to talk to you real raw and unapologetic. Like you the homie, like you the homegirl, like we in the beauty salon and we drinking. You know, I feel like I'm kind of like if Angela Rye and Cardi B and Oprah could blend together. Oh my gosh. And then be slathered in a Dr. Ruth. That is what you would get with me. That's sexologist Michelle Hope. As she says, women are sexualized from the womb to the tomb, which leaves too many of us internalizing all sorts of stereotypes and societal pressures that we then take into the bedroom. So how exactly do you separate all that noise from our sex lives so we can, you know, actually enjoy sex? We are going to talk about all of that and more. And just to be forewarned, this episode does also include conversations about sexual assault. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, Let's just jump in. You are a sex educator, an activist, and have worked as an unapologetic sexologist for over 15 years. I have to admit, I've never heard of a sexologist before. What does a sexologist actually do? Well, sexology itself by term is studying human sexual behavior. Mm. Um, And when you think about that, it could be the study of the act of sex, genital pleasure. It could be the study of human behavior around getting to sex. Mm -hmm. It really encompasses the idea of emotional wellness, mental wellness, physical wellness, as it pertains to sex and sexuality. For me, I like to take it a step farther Mm -hmm. and really explore the intersections of how sexuality interplays with race, socioeconomics, education level. Yes. Yeah. And then how that actually impacts your everyday life. So I think about this in a way like I look at what I like to call um, the sexuality of social justice. So what I'm always thinking about is reproductive justice, which is a term coined by Sister Song. Uh, and there are some main principles when it comes to reproductive justice. And those principles revolve around everyone should have the right to make decisions about when they want to have a child, right. how they choose to bring that child into the world. Or if they choose to have one at all. And that's the second principle is choosing not to have a child, having access to education, information and health care to make decisions to not have a child, to end uh, pregnancy, whether by whatever means. So right. it's access to birth control or adoption, whatever the case may be. And then the third and really, really important part about reproductive justice is that it states its third principle really seeks to realize a world where we can raise the children we already have in safe and sustainable environments with the social support systems that we need to have healthy outcomes for those children without Mm. fear of bodily harm or any type of harm from institution, the state, or individual. That's a really important way to look at reproductive justice because I think So often we think about it in the binary of just being about birth control or just being for cis women um, and really pulling back and realizing that all of these elements of our lives are connected is really powerful. So thank you for that. That was truly not a way I'd thought about it before, but it, it makes perfect sense. How did you become a sexologist? You know... That is a very interesting story. So thank you for asking. (laughs) Um, 
So I am a black woman. I identify as a queer black woman. My mother is white and my father is black. I was raised in Indiana. Uh, so I identify a, a black biracial queer woman. Uh, my mother is a lesbian and I started marching and getting involved in activism, you know, at like five before I knew what it was mm -hmm. um, fighting and marching and going to like my mother's activism workshops um, around gay rights and feminism. So when you think about that, you know, some people are like, how did you get into this? It's like, well, my mother is a lesbian and an activist, but was closeted. So I knew mm. it was not acceptable where I grew up. And then we would fight secretly for the rights of gay people. I, P.S., I would watch this movie. Like where... <laughs> I sign me up. DVR is set. Child, we haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> I know. I'm okay. like on the edge of my seat. <laughs> um, so it, it was this very weird juxtaposition where I was hypersexualized because I looked exotic. And then I was taught that sexuality is a part of your life. My mom loves to tell the story that I was a, a humper as a child because <laughs> children do masturbate. It is right. totally normal. Right. Um, and I remember her telling me like, you can't do that in public. You don't do that. You know, I, it's, it's one of those things. It's a self-soothing mechanism for children. And even there, you can see ultrasounds where boys will self-pleasure in the womb. So sex was always a part of growing up in that context. Love and who you love doesn't matter. was always a part of the context, but being gay was bad and we can't tell anybody. Mm. And, uh, that was a part of the the messaging. And then also race was a huge part of the messaging. So it, it kind of was organic to me. And, you know, these conversations, I remember having my, I have naturally curly hair. I do not wear it that way. But the reason why is because it's high maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, but I love who I am. And I love my mother's strength to, to persist. And I love what she taught me. But sometimes I have to remind her that like, Ooh, that was racist. Yeah. And I think what people don't understand, and I think that biracial people in general are sometimes an unseen class of people, because growing up, usually we are not black enough for uh, black communities and we are not white enough for white communities, right? right. So you walk this fine line of code shifting and trying to find your identity and trying to understand how your racial identity impacts how you view yourself in the world. And even to the extent that, you know, again, I identify as a black woman. That is, I, I'm, I'm brown skinned. Most people don't think I'm black. And even as an adult, when I tell people I'm black, they're like, and what else? Or they're like, are you sure? Or and, and, and I have that experience. And then I remember growing up and my mom taking me to the doctor and I was very young. And the woman that was checking us in was like, oh, when did you adopt? And that was a theme that I wow. heard. And even if you were adopted, like that's really no one else's business. <laughs> When we talk about sexual pleasure, that's something that a lot of us are not comfortable talking about or even exploring. And I'm I'm curious to hear from you when we talk about sexual pleasure, you know, you're so good at looking at the big picture. How do you believe that sexual pleasure or self-pleasure is actually a form of self-care? Like what are the reasons why we should be figuring out what we like and what feels good for us beyond you know, having a pleasurable experience in the bedroom? Well, I think first and foremost, we must remember that self-care in itself is a privilege. Not everybody has the opportunity or access to give that to themselves, even mm -hmm. if the self-care is as simple as a hot bath with no interruptions. So right. I just want to, I want to pin that. Thank but you. then- I want to kind of point out that when we often think about self-care, we think about taking care of the body, doctor checkups, eating right, getting ample sleep, facials maybe, or even like haircuts, right? But on a deeper level, when we think of emotional self-care, we think of counseling or therapy, mm -hmm. which is a more nuanced and newer concept 
in and to your normal- point, not everybody has access to therapy. Hello. Hello. You know, in addition to it being stigmatized, not everybody has healthcare or right. even knows where to go to find a therapist. Or even has a therapist that looks like them. I think Ooh. that's really important because if you look at the data, I believe the data states that it's less than 5% of therapists counselors or psychiatrists are African-American and less than like 3% or somewhere around 2% the last time I checked were psychiatrists. So that's uh, the ability to prescribe meds. So when you think about that, you have to consider that because of the stigmas, the stigmatization, um, black people don't do counseling, we do church. And then you get, you get shame in church around sexuality, but Pleasure is pleasure is pleasure. So if you find pleasure in getting your nails done and you think that's important, you also have to focus on what I like to call not just the body self-care, but the checkup from the neck up. And a part of that 360 holistic approach to self-care has to include pleasure. And being able to talk about what pleasures you in the bedroom and being able to pleasure yourself. One thing I always say, child, the, the listen, uh, great sex starts with self. Mm. I feel like you need like a line of magnets or something. You're just dropping all of these gems. <laughs> I love a one liner. Okay. Um, so do I. And here's the reason why, because I need people to remember this. I don't want to give you all these fluffy ass words. I want to talk to you real raw and unapologetic. Like you the homie, like you the homegirl, like we in the beauty salon and we drinking. You know, I feel like I'm kind of like if if Angela Rye and Cardi B um, and Oprah could blend together. Oh my gosh. And then be sprinkled or slathered in a Dr. Ruth. That is what you would get with me. Like, oh my gosh, I love that. Um, and, and so I think the reason that pleasure is so important to self-care is that it can not only build your self-confidence, which we can talk about how orgasm and masturbation and great sex can boost all these health benefits, but you can then tell somebody and articulate what you like. Right. The only caveat to that is you have to be taught the language right. and you have to practice. So when I work with clients on a like, coaching basis. I'm like, whether it's a couple, whether it's a single that's person. The, that's You give them homework? Are you kidding me? Yes. That's why I left marriage family therapy school. Because what that's I realized um, heading into my second year of, of uh, my grad program in MFT with a specialization in African-American family studies was that one, Black people are not going to therapy. And two, listen, child, I can talk to my homegirl about all this, although you should not do that. Um, I don't need to talk, 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 talk. I need practical, applicable tools. I need a toolkit. I need to practice Mm -hmm. things. I need to look in the mirror to myself and say, this is what I like sexually. I need to be able to have the confidence to talk to my girlfriends about sex. Because if I can talk to myself in the mirror and I can talk to my girlfriends about sex, I'm probably going to be able to talk to my partner about sex. And when I can talk to my partner about sex, I can talk about sexual health. When was your last checkup? Can we get an STI test together? I will not have sex without condoms. Um, You know, you have to set boundaries. And the only way you can do that is through practice and knowing what those boundaries are. Shoot, you might like a thumb in your butt. (laughs) We support you. We affirm you if that is your thing. But to your point, you have to know what it is you like in order to say yes or no to certain things. It's like Um, food. Yes. Exactly. You know, it's funny. I saw a tweet that said something along the line of, are you horny or are you just depressed? Um, Because, you know, during this pandemic, a lot of us are, I'm myself uh, quarantined alone. And I felt very called out by (laughs) by that tweet. I was just like, um, yeah, my self-care, self-pleasure routine is probably being influenced by the fact that I'm lonely and having some days where I'm like sad and I just um, feel stressed by the world. But on the inverse side of that, um, self-pleasure is a way to 
make yourself feel better holistically. And so I love the idea of encouraging people to do that homework. Um, And it's fun homework. It's not like calculus or something boring that you're never going to use. So when we talk about uh, pleasure, do you think that you have to have an, like, do you need an orgasm in order for it to qualify as pleasure? Absolutely not. No, ma'am. I'll say it one more time for the people in the back. No, you don't have to have an orgasm to experience self Why do you think people look why do you think people link those together as uh, mutually exclusive? Because we have awful sex education in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it is important to state we need um, federally mandated, culturally competent, age appropriate, medically accurate, and inclusive sex ed K through 12. Right. Period. Um, I think that it is important because oftentimes, again, when I work with young people or adults, for whatever reason, people get intimacy and genital sexual pleasure confused. They Mm, think that they're the same thing. That is a word. (laughs) And I'm like, not the same thing. While intimacy can include sexual pleasurable acts of sex, that is not all it means. It means closeness. It means a deep relationship. And you should be having that with yourself. So that's why sexual pleasure is so important, not to mention all of the health benefits that come along with orgasm, whether it's with one person, two people, three people, whatever, as long as it's consenting adults, right? You know, it's this idea that sexual pleasure One, doesn't always need to lead to an orgasm. And two, it's you becoming intimate with yourself, Mm -hmm. especially if you're not like you can have intimate, sexy moments in a bathtub with the candles lit. Like we have to tap into our senses, right? Mm -hmm. What's it smell like? What's it look like? What's it taste like? What's it feel like? What's it sound like? I've gotten into a new thing, ASMR. Porn. Yes, that is a whole thing. Totally. It's amazing. Um, I don't know what it stands for, but for people listening, it's the idea that certain sounds trigger like body tingles or just make you kind of feel like a euphoric state. So there's a whole genre on YouTube of people scratching on different fabrics or tapping on the microphone or um, just speaking very softly and, and sensually. And a lot of people use it not even uh, sexually just to go to sleep. Maybe they just listen to it before they go to bed. Absolutely. Um, it's so, a- now there, so there's porn that is also ASMR. But it uses the sound of like how skin touches skin, the sound of what a aroused and lubricated vulva sounds like, the sound of what kissing sounds like. And that is so important when we start to think about what turns us on. People always think that sex is about your genitals. It's actually about your brain. <laughs> and I really appreciated that you like got really soft and quiet when you said that. It was a very it was very clever. I mean, it's important to remember that your your brain is the most important part of sex, right? Without that, penises don't just get hard without some type of brain stimulation and vaginas and vulvas don't get wet. Well, I guess vaginas don't get wet without some sort of brain stimulation. Now, Men's brains and women's brains, they work totally different, child. And men are can focus more um, on sex, whereas women, because we use both hemispheres, we really have to do the work to drown out all the thoughts we have. Like, is the stove on? Who's picking the kids up for soccer practice? But I think also kind of what we've been talking about just in terms of the way that the world has programmed us, in my experience, I find that a lot of women, myself included, are also thinking about like, do I look hot? Is this the right way to do it? Am I doing it as good as somebody else has done it? And really the stigmas surrounding our ability to say that something is pleasurable or say what we want is not something that many of us, again, myself included, have felt empowered to do. There is, in my experience, 
a lot of freedom for straight cis men to talk about their sex lives and talk about what they like and talk about their sexual prowess and their performance, where for women, you know, talking about those things in an empowered and honest way is often seen as, you know, you're promiscuous, you are not marriage material, um, and you're defacing your body. No one's going to want to be intimate with you. And I think we can't discount the fact that we unfortunately take those thoughts and internalize them and bring them into the bedroom with us. But the interesting part is, is beyond that, like I've done some work with individuals in South Africa and I've been on some radio shows and taking caller questions and the basic sexual health knowledge that is not known by men in South Africa is alarming to the point that I've heard questions from adult men Mm -hmm. like, why doesn't my penis stay hard after ejaculation? And it's like, I don't know, but it's the human sexual response cycle. And that's, and I, and I don't say it to anybody like that. Let me be very clear. Right. Um, I have a lot of empathy, but I'm heartbroken that they just don't have the sex education that they need to stay informed about their own bodies. And these are grown folk. And then you ask yourself, well, why is HIV and AIDS still rampant in Africa? Huh? Maybe it's because they don't have access to medically accurate information. Right. I mean, this it is one of those things where, you know, it's chicken before the egg, right? Where people say, well, why is this a problem? And you have to realize that to your point, if people are not educated about how to prevent a problem, then the problem's going to run rampant. Um, and we see that when it comes to people having unprotected sex and having un- unwanted children or unwanted pregnancies. We can't put our you know our hands over our eyes and ears and just pretend that it just happened out of nowhere. <laughs> there is a reason that it happened. Yeah. I get questions. Schmegma, for some reason, men don't know that that's a thing. I got a, an international email from someone asking okay, me. Okay. You're going to have to, I, I mean, I've heard the word. I'm a little, I'm a little worried about what the definition might be, but truthfully, I don't know what it means. Okay. So schmegma can, if you're uncircumcised, if you have an uncircumcised penis, um, schmegma can build up in that fold. And it's Blah. like- skin cells. It's like, um, it's like, you know, lint from your underwear, it's sweat, it's bodily oil. But I also want to let you know, women can get the buildup and funky cheese too in our folds. (laughs) It's totally normal. It's totally normal. And this person was like, is there a way I can prevent this? I was like, wash your genitals every day. You can't prevent it. It's just a part of being human. But you know what? I'm so glad that you are in this role where people can ask you these questions unapologetically because clearly there's not enough places or enough people that are providing a safe space to have these conversations. Um, And you talked about working with couples, and I'm really interested to hear if someone is struggling in their sex lives, what steps are you recommending for couples to take to make sure that they have better communication around what they want and how to actually pleasure and provide for each other in that way. Before we get into that, here's a quick note from our sponsor. It's time to demand more from your birth control and take control of our reproductive health. Anavera is a first of its kind vaginal ring that lasts an entire year. For each cycle, Anavera is inserted and left in place for 21 continuous days and then removed for seven days. That means no more remembering to take pills every day, no procedures, just long-lasting birth control that puts you in control. Keep listening for important risk information about Anavera, including a boxed warning about smoking and cardiovascular risks. Again, we're going to go back to homework. So listen, I look at this from a learned behavior perspective. Everything we know about sex, love, relationships, it's all learned. So, and when we think about how adult learners learn and how humans develop, um, as adults, we have a base set of knowledge and then we just build on that. So if you got bad knowledge when you were younger and you're building on bad knowledge, you're, you're building a, a, a house of cards, basically. It's eventually mm-hmm. going to topple over. So first and foremost, what, what one of the exercises I do is we explore how you came to understand what sex was, who taught you, 
what were the influences that made you understand sex? Because as a couple, I first need to understand individually how you know sex, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's where I'm going to find that shame, that trauma, even if it's not physical, like maybe you were a young person who developed early. And so people made fun of you or talked about your breasts or your curves, or maybe you developed late and then you was like tiny penis man in the locker room. So I first need to get there. And then once we get there, we can start really building healthy ideas around sexuality. But first we have to excavate those wounds and clean them out and remove all that toxic and bad learned behavior. And then we set a baseline. And then we look at, well, how well do you know your partner's desires, A, how well do you know your own desires, B, and how well do you communicate those desires to your partner? Do you feel judged? Do you feel shame? And then we, that's the next layer, right? And then we start to talk about, well, how do you, in that communication space with each other around sex, how are you talking about sex? How are you building fantasies together? How are you exploring different sexual fantasies together? Do you watch porn together? Does one person watch too much porn and the other person is adverse to porn? Like we, we, we get into that space and then we start to really talk about how we can meet in the middle mm-hmm. and how as a couple, you can start to build your own sexual story. Because regardless of what society says, I don't give a care, a hoot nanny, what society says sex, love, or a relationship should look like between two people. I don't care what Instagram says. I don't need all them filters. Oh, thank you. Thank you. At least I don't need them for you. What I need. No Valencia over here. Not for us. No, not today. Not the lo-fi or the (laughs) low-hi-fi. Whatever it is, Sierra, Um, what I need you to do is start identifying what is the sexual bubble that you and your partner, the only two people in that relationship, want for each other. Mm-hmm. What do you want for yourself? What do you want for your partner? And and it, when I say, what do you want for yourself? What do you want for yourself as a, if you were not with this person? Right. What would the qualities look like? And when I say- And I think that's important too, because a lot of times some people might feel pressured to want to do certain things because they think that that's what their partner wants and it's not necessarily what they want to do. You know, what's interesting is there is some data that speaks to how much anal sex skyrocketed once everybody had access to porn online. Mm. Um, Well, and to your point, porn is truly- not where people should be getting their sex education from because it's it's made for um, you know the male gaze most often like the straight male gaze and yes. i mean uh, to your point about consent how do you expect young men to understand consent when there's so much porn that's like super rapey where women do not look like they're enjoying themselves at all like it's not about their pleasure. It's about them like crying and and yelping. And it's just it's just like those are not things that's what I want to do. But and again, no shame to anyone that does want that. But to represent that as something that all women want is doing a major disservice to young men when it comes to having sexual encounters with with women. Because if they're just uh, emulating what they've seen in pornography, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, it's very true, but I'll blow your mind even more with this one. Think about all the rom-coms you've seen, all the movies you've seen, all the series you've watched. When has consent ever been spoken about? Oh, and and, it, and oh, that's so true. <laughs> but let's back it. Let's go even more deeper. Get your floaties, honey, because. Then I want you to think about in those same secular pop culture, regular TV shows we see on any given channel, when do you see condom use implemented? Very rarely. Unless Never. It's, uh, uh, oftentimes, if it is included, it's for laughs or it is, you know, the like, she's poking holes in the condom or something like that. It's very rarely done in a way where we're like, both people are talking about it. One partner asks for it or the other person says, I'm going to wear a condom. 
it's truly glossed over. It is absolutely glossed over. So that's why when I work with clients, whether it's a couple, whether it's an individual, whether it's parents, whether it's an institution or organization where I'm working with youth service providers or coaches, I bring this up because even the narrative that they have in their mind is incorrect. Therefore, their ability to have the language to speak to what is healthy is not there. They don't have it because for so long, we have looked at sex as something men know how to do. Women will coquettishly act like they don't want. Yeah, saying no is really try harder. And especially in movies and television, it's just like, I mean, even thinking about how many movies the theme is a man like breaking into a woman's house and hiding in her closet and then jumping out to surprise her with flowers. It's like, don't break into my house. That's not romantic. That is scary. (laughs) Creepy. I'd be terrified if someone did that. Or, you know, how many movies or TV shows where the men are spying on women in the shower or looking through the window while they're having a slumber party and it's always positioned as, oh, it's so cute, so sweet. And like Steve Urkel, he was a creep. He was a creep. Laura, I can't believe you fell in love with him. I support you. I affirm you. You're an adult. But like Urkel was doing some creepy stuff. I mean, yes, very much so. And this is one of the things, you know, I got some flack for this, but I spoke about Aziz Ansari Mm -hmm. and I was like, listen, what happened was all the way bad from every angle. And a lot of people were like, he should have known better. And then other people on the other side were like, she shouldn't have been in his house that late. And I said, no, 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 no. Both of them were in very awkward positions when you consider what sex education in the U.S. looks like, what the media and where we learn about sex look like because we continue to teach men that no is just try harder. And we continue to tell women, you don't say no, but you don't want to say yes, because then you look like a slut. So therefore you don't have the language to say this is bad. Right. We also present this idea that women aren't, that we're not allowed to change our mind, you know? And, And I think a lot of times, Unfortunately, when people of any background are brave enough to talk about their sexual assault experiences, often they're blamed for it, which just perpetuates this idea that like, well, I did something wrong. If I had done this differently, if I hadn't gone over there, if I hadn't worn this, if I hadn't had sex with them consensually one time before, if I hadn't fooled around with them another time or, you know, preceding the event, then it's really easy for people to be confused about the fact that no, if someone assaults you, like they made the choice to assault you, you did not do anything that gave them permission to assault you. That's like the complete opposite of sexual assault. Absolutely. And when you think about the other side of that, and this is not to be like, um, you know, I'm co-signing any bad behavior by anybody who's the aggressor, but what if somebody's like, wait a minute, I'm not 100% sure that was consensual and Mm -hmm. I don't know, that person's never going to ask any questions because then we'll be like, you're this, you're that. And and then we don't heal anybody and we don't teach any new techniques to stop what is happening, right? right? If we're not comfortable having conversations about sexuality in general, then we never get to the really tough conversations about consent and all of the gray matter that consists in the space of consent. Yeah. And you know, it's funny too, because I remember when that Aziz story happened, there were, I had some tough conversations with uh, male friends of mine that were just like, well, so what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to ask if you want to do it. And I'm like, yeah, it's I mean, it's not really that hard, but also it can be kind of hot. You know what I mean? Like you're checking in with your partner and you're like, do you want me to do this? Can I do this? Can I touch you here? Can I, I mean, it, it can be really erotic and it can be really fun. And to your point earlier about developing a language with your partner around sex um, and pleasure, I mean, why not check in with them? It doesn't have to be like, fill out this form before I take your underwear off. (laughs) You can just ask them, can I do this? How do you want me to do this? Show me the best way for for me to do this. Um, And it can be really fun in that way. Well, when you think about that, yeah, that's great. But even when you look at condom instructions, nowhere in any condom, because I've, I've, I've looked at this, and when I work with college-age students and adolescents, 
I, I highlight the fact that here are the steps to using a condom correctly. Nowhere is there consent. So I teach First, you ask for consent, and then you check the expiration date. You see if there are any holes. You open it, not with your mouth. You pinch the tip because remember, it's just a thin sheath of latex and semen comes out, you know, faster than 10 miles an hour. And if there's no air bubble or if there's an air bubble there, it'll break the condom. You pinch the tip, you roll all the way down. And before you start having fun, you ask again. And the young people say the exact same thing you said. Well, that's not sexy. I said, but it can be. Because what if you ask, hey, babe, what position do you want to do first? You've just asked for consent because you have put the ball in your partner's court by allowing them to tell you. You know, I think that, again, it's teaching people the language. It's mm -hmm. te it's not, oh, because usually when I ask young people, well, after you get the condom on, what do you say? Because remember, you got to ask for consent. Again, they're like, are you sure you want to do this? Now, let's look at the psychology of words. Are you sure you want to do this? That puts doubt in someone's mind. Right. And it, it almost makes them be like, wait a minute, do I? What's wrong mm -hmm. with you? Why would I not want to? So you should- It feels like in, a trick question. Exactly. And consent should be enthusiastic. So a great way to ask enthusiastic questions is saying, which position do you want to try first? Or- how do you like this? Can I, maybe, can I touch you here? Would you like it if I touched you here? Right. You see how that right. ch totally changes the the whole dynamic of how we, we as humans process information. Words are important. Words becomes thoughts. Thoughts become actions. Actions become habits and habits become lifestyles. Mm. Similarly to when I speak to the importance of language, why do we say things like, girl, I'm finna beat it up. If a woman called a man and was like, hey, babe, how you doing, honey? <laughs> I can't wait to see you tonight, baby. I'm finna beat that dick up. Nobody wants their yeah, dick it is really, It's really strange how there's so many aggressive allusions to sex and music. Clearly, I think what we're all circling around is that we need more consent anthems. Like, yes. I mean, I'm sure there's a way to do it and make it sound cool and make it sound hot. Um, but the way that we talk about sex in media, whether it be movies, TV shows, or songs, it really does influence every fiber of our lives. So then, you know, if people are having painful sexual experiences, well, yeah, talking about beating up someone's pussy, I mean, people are going to think, well, maybe this is how it's supposed to feel. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. I mean, beating does not sound comfortable to me. It's a violent act. I'm going to beat it up. I'm going to shoot up the club. I'm going to murder the pussy. Oh I'm like when you really start to think about this, you're like, holy cow, somebody is trying to kill my pussy. Yeah. And that's, that's no. But that I is the like to leave this experience with a live and fully intact puss. Thank you. <laughs> it, totally. But then what's the, the irony of it all is how feminists came down on Cardi B when she, in her song WAP, and I'm going to quote the lyrics, um, uh, I don't want to spit. I want to gulp. I want to gag. I want to choke. I want you to touch that little dangly, dangly thing right in the back of my throat. So she's telling you exactly what, what she, she wants. wants. You see what I'm saying? But then we yeah. say, oh, my God, she set the movement back hundreds of years. Well, and I, I really dislike that thinking because if feminism is supposed to be about women making choices for themselves, if you decide that one woman's choice negatively affects all of us, you're saying it's okay to see all women as the same when in reality – we're supposed to be giving women the freedom to make choices for themselves. So because Cardi B wants that, she's allowed to want that. And somebody else is allowed to say, my gag ref reflex is very sensitive. Don't go near that dangly thing. Right. Stay away. <laughs> right. And I mean, that's the most extreme part of the song, right? But there are other parts of the song where she says, I tell him where to put it. Or Megan says, I tell him where to put it. So that means, again, I have assertive language when it comes to my sexuality to say, this is where I want you to put it and this is how I want you to put it. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. this, it, like it, this is the thing 
that we have to focus on. Cardi B in the song says, tie me up like I'm surprised. She's telling you exactly what she wants. She's giving you a manual for goodness sakes. If that's not consent, I don't know what is. Okay, so what we're gonna do is play our signature game segment. Michelle, I will go first and see if you can determine which of my statements is a lie. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Statement number one. In college, a guy dumped me because I got my period in his bed. Uh, Number two, I learned how to pee standing up at a summer theater program. And number three, I once sprained my ankle during sex. Okay. I think the theater, peeing standing up at a theater camp sounds super true. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think period got you dumped. Okay. So are you saying that you think the sprained ankle in bed was a lie? Yes, that is my final answer. Oh my, you're good. Yes, you are correct. That is That was my lie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I got to say, I was so bummed. I went out with this guy. Uh, we were dating a little bit. I, I had my period as periods happen. And I was so upset because I, I thought I was being very clever. I got him like uh, a package of new sheets and like a shout bottle as like a little sorry present. And he was just like, I don't think I should do, we should do this anymore. And I was just like, um, cool. I'm going to keep these sheets and the shout. You don't get to have this very cute and clever gift. Um, so lack of sex how- education. That's how I knew that one was a go. That's how um, I knew that one was true. Oh, mortifying. I mean, I was pretty upset about it, but look at me now. (laughs) It prepared me to play this game. Um, Would you like to go with uh, your three statements and I'll try to pick which one is the lie? Absolutely. Okay. Um, So I once got my period in the back of my pageant coordinator's car while I was Miss Black California and there was blood all over the seat, and oh, I had no. to clean it up with vinegar. Oh, no. Um, two, I once went to Vegas with 50 cents in my pocket um, and gambled my way to $2,000. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say 50 cent like the rapper. <laughs> Where is this going? <laughs> Ironically enough, I... Well, I have anyway. And my third thing is um, I love Disneyland. Like I'm a huge Mickey and Minnie fan. It's the okay. happiest place on earth. Okay. All right. So I feel like the first one had a lot of details, which to me says is the truth. You, uh, you know, in the gown and the vinegar in the back seat, like there's just, it's a, such a vivid story. I'm going to say that one's true. Okay. I'm also going to say, I'm also going to say Disneyland is true only because I feel like that's a surprising truth that I don't think it it doesn't, it just seems so out of left field that I'm going to say that one's true. And then I'm going to say the 50 cents uh, Vegas one is the lie. So you are wrong. I I hate Disneyland. (laughs) I think it is the most awful place on earth. Um, Like, you know, I've gone there a few times and when in your mind, when you're on your way there, you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be great. And then you get there and you're like, this is a nightmare. I am, I am, I am around large rats. (laughs) Um, and I'm standing in line. That is definitely one way to think about Mickey and Minnie. I don't normally think of them as rats, but technically you're not wrong. Yeah. And living in New York, we've all had mice and some of us have been awoken by Master Splinter in the middle of the night. So I'm cool on you. The struggle. I listen, I had a mouse in my apartment in Brooklyn and I was like, sir, you need to start paying rent because at this point I have caught you multiple times and you keep coming back. And if we're going to, we're going to make this work, you have to contribute. (laughs) Totally. And actually, so yes, the pageant thing is real. And the, um, 50 cents to my friend was dating a high roller and she was like, I don't know if I should go. I was like, girl, you better go have a good time. I don't want to go alone. So she was like, come with me. And it was like a 30 minute decision. I was living in LA. 
I had on one outfit and I literally was young and broke and had an ID and 50 cents. So when we got there, I had my own suite, high roller, gets everything. I got like 500 bucks on the house to play with. And I came back with $2,000 playing blackjack. I'm so terrible at gambling. I'm definitely going to take you with me next time I get invited because I need some of that good gambling energy because uh, I'm I'm terrible. Well, it's a good time. Trust your <laughs> trust your inner uterine spidey sense. That's what I always say. You know, some of the things that you talked about just in doing my research about you is how difficult it is for us to talk about sex and sexuality. And I'm curious, what are some of the common questions that you hear coming up from clients that come to you and want help when it comes to talking about sex and and what they need and what they want to explore? So I think there's two parts to to this answer. First and foremost, let's talk about the non-clients, right? Mm. Let's talk about um, you like know, when you when someone finds out you're a sexologist and they just yes. start like dumping their questions onto you. Dumping not just questions, but oh, trauma. No. Oh no. Oh goodness. And and one of the reasons I do what I do, it's so interesting because I, I am an intersectional hood angry black feminist, right? Like Mm. that's what it is. However, this idea of what feminism is, is very interesting to me and how people perceive it, especially black communities, you know. Well, to be fair, like the feminist movement for a long time has not been for black women the same way that, you know, you so eloquently brought up that, you know, you can be a feminist and you can be fighting for the needs of women, but all women do not experience the same things. And so I think, you know, I think a lot of black women are rightfully wary of the feminist movement because they have found that time and time again, they haven't been included. And so that that has led to them being confused or having a a misunderstanding of what feminism is supposed to be versus what it is in practice. Yes, that's very true. And if that's how black women are processing it, how are black men processing it? Ugh. Yes. (laughs) So when I talk about the non-clients, most people automatically go to the genital act of pleasurable Mm -hmm. sex. Mm -hmm. And and then when I start to break it down and it takes a little bit, I hear- So what's your, what's your like, like if I'm a non-client on the street and we start, you know, we're waiting for the bus and we start talking about work and I say, so what do you do? What's like the, the quick- explanation of what is like what you do and what a sexologist is so that you can avoid those weird questions. Well, hopefully <laughs> I never avoid them because often, and I'll explain why in a moment, but you know, it, I say sexology is the study of human sexual behavior. And I look at it from the perspective of how sexuality impacts your everyday life, because mm. I believe that from the womb to the tomb, sexuality is a part of your everyday life. Doesn't necessarily have to be rooted in a pleasure space or a genital act space. I then bring up wage gaps, gender bias, uh, sexual and reproductive health, sensuality, sexualization, um, all of these things. And I explained to them, well, sexualization on its healthiest end is flirting. Um, In the middle is like, how we use sex to sell products. And on the negative end is uh, sexual assault, rape, and incest. Okay. Cause it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a spectrum. Right. And all of this is, and you know, so it's interesting because then once I start to break that down, all of the sudden, especially with people of color, they want to divulge how they were traumatized as a child, how they first were introduced to sex. And usually it's a traumatic thing. And men, especially if there's alcohol involved, it always, at first it'll be something really, really patriarchal and kind of shitty. And then it will eventually, after a few drinks and some liquid courage, go to these very intimate experiences of sexual assault or um either either experiencing the, it themselves as a victim or discussing how they may have pushed up on someone at some point because of the way they were taught what sexuality and manhood looked like. And that is really important to me because one, I don't think we create a safe space for men of color to have conversations oh, about sexual yeah. assault. And 
to that point. Well, we also don't really talk about sexual assault with men as victims unless it's like for quote unquote comedy, like in movies or TV shows. And even I'm sure you've seen this a bajillion times, but we often see stories about um, teacher, like female teachers, for example, um, sexualizing young boys or assaulting young boys. And the spin in our media and in in circles is, well, I wish I had had that teacher or I wish that had happened to me or he should be lucky. I can't believe he complained. I mean, I right. think a lot of people don't realize that those comments, while they may think they are not harmful or they're harmless, that there's like a trickle down effect that you are essentially telling other survivors to be quiet, that they asked for it or they shouldn't be feel lucky or that it actually was an assault. You became um, a man. You weren't ugh. sexually assaulted. I actually, in working with Opportunity Youth and young people, I had one young man tell me in a class, because that's the other thing. Men don't know how to have the conversation or that it's private. So mm-hmm. for younger um, people, it ends up being a very public disclosure in a classroom, mm-hmm. in a group session in a community workshop and they minimalize it and marginalize it in such a way because our society has done that. And I had one student once tell me that they had experienced sexual assault as a child brought on by another child, which that tells me a high likelihood that whatever female child approached them and assaulted them, they probably had been assaulted because that's the only way they would know the behavior. Because I believe he said- He was in like elementary school and a girl pushed him into a bathroom or a private space and then performed fellatio on him. And he had expressed, he had told that story to a PE teacher and it was a male PE teacher. And the PE teacher looked at him and said, oh no, if your penis got hard, that is not considered sexual assault. My goodness. And, and we have seen what happens when we do this to women. So let me tell you what I've experienced when it happens to men. In the literature, what we see or tend to see is that when women are sexually assaulted, they then go, if they do not get the help that they need, and even if they do, they then go inward and self-harm, whether it's through addiction, whether it's through risky behavior. And then in my experience working with young men, And I've taught at places like Horizons, which I coined Baby Rikers because it is the maximum security facility for um, under 18 here in New York that are um, violent offenders or are repeat offenders of a lesser crime, but are facing felony charges. And what I have started to notice is that while women go inward and self-harm, young men go outward. And when we do not give them an outlet to process that, I believe, based on my experience and the work that I've done, it makes it twice as hard for them to understand what consent is. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've seen it time and time and time again. And you, if you think about it for a moment, well, if we marginalize the experience of these survivors and we tell them, no, that wasn't sexual assault. It was, you know, you got lucky. Then how are they going to know yep. if and Come when on. they are on the other end Come of on, the girl. situation? Come, <laughs> Come on, we're feeling hot tea today. I mean, yeah, listen, you are preaching a word. I am here in my living room. I am snapping. I am swaying. My hands are outstretched. I mean, yes. I think there's one more thing that's very important. Mm -hmm. When you think about consent and body autonomy, meaning that your body is yours and nobody can make decisions for your body, but you look at the history of reproductive oppression in the United States, as well as the criminal justice system. Yes. If a young black man walks down the street and is stopped and frisked because that is the law. And in New York, that was the law for a long time. For whatever reason, a cop said, you know what? I want to stop and frisk you. They have the right to touch your body in private places. And you have nothing to say. You can say nothing because that is the law. Now that is not body autonomy. So therefore, I am a firm believer that people of color have never actually gotten to realize or understand what consent is because we have never had body autonomy here. I mean, look, the whole 
gynecology. I mean, yeah. if we really want to talk about like the study of gynecology and what was done to enslaved Black women's bodies in order to give us the knowledge that we have about our reproductive systems, um, you are absolutely correct. We have not been able to make choices about our bodies. Nope. For women, we are damned if we do, damned if we don't, because um, it's like we're being told to be sexual beings all the time, but we're also told that we can't say we enjoy sex. We can't talk about what we want. We can't admit to having multiple partners or not being in a monogamous relationship or you know wanting certain things that fall outside of the quote unquote norm. Um, but at the same time, we're stigmatized if you're a virgin or if you are shy about talking about certain things or wanting certain things. I mean, I think what I love about these conversations in this podcast is that we're encouraging everyone to embrace their sexuality and em embrace their bodies. Um, and I think what I'd love to ask you about is what role do you believe that birth control and equal access to it can play in our pleasure? Takes us right back to the beginning of this podcast. Hallelujah. <laughs> and reproductive justice, right? Uh, you know, when I talked about this idea that all people should have the right to make decisions about their bodies, one, it comes with education and how birth control and access to birth control can work for you. Two, it's actual access to birth control. And we have a lot of states right now that are making a full-on assault mm -hmm. against access to birth control and safe abortions. Okay. And I think when we think about this, birth control gives us a choice to, mm -hmm. to prevent pregnancy. It allows us to take our power back because let's face it, this is not the handmaid's tale. And it allows women to empower themselves through choice. And if they choose to use birth control, it's their body. It is their choice. No one person's body is more important than the other. And up until now, while we still have Roe v. Wade, that means a woman can make a decision about her body and, and her uterus and whether or not they want to bring a child into the world for all mm -hmm. the uterus owners out there, whether they identify as a woman or not. Mm -hmm. So I think that... The, Birth control is so important. I remember, you know, I've been on birth control my whole life, on and off, and I felt empowered as a teen being able to have the freedom to take birth control as well as identify and explore my own sexual proclivities because that's what teens do. So I think that birth control is a super, super important part of not only the work that I do, but for human rights. And I say that very, very thoughtfully. I don't want birth control to be a woman's issue because nothing mm -hmm. in reproductive justice is a woman's issue. It is a human. Human. Issue. Yes. You know what? I think that is a wonderful, positive note to end on. This has been such an enlightening conversation. Um, thank you for just your vulnerability and your honesty and just dropping all those truth bombs. I mean... I can see why you do what you do. You're good. You've got <laughs> the knowledge, but you also have the the one-liners. And uh, that you can't teach people that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Subscribe to Full Disclosure by Pop Sugar wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Full Disclosure by Pop Sugar is presented by Anavera, the only long-lasting reversible birth control that is procedure-free and controlled by women. Keep listening for important risk information about Anavera, including a boxed warning about smoking and cardiovascular risks. Do not use Anavera, Suggesterone Acetate, and Ethanyl Estradiol Vaginal System if you smoke cigarettes and are over 35 years old. Smoking increases your risk of serious heart and blood vessel cardiovascular side effects from hormonal birth control methods, including death from heart attack, blood clots, or stroke. This risk increases with age and the number of cigarettes you smoke. Anavera does not protect against HIV infection. 
AIDS, and other sexually transmitted infections. The use of a combination hormonal contraceptive, or CHC, like Anovera, is associated with increased risks of several serious side effects, including blood clots, stroke, or heart attack. Do not use Anovera if you have a history of these conditions. Have reduced blood flow to your brain, cerebrovascular disease, or reduced blood flow or blockage in any of the arteries that supply blood to your heart, cardiovascular disease, or any condition that makes your blood more likely to clot. The risk of blood clots is highest when you first start using CHCs and when you restart the same or different CHC after not using it for four weeks or more. Enovera is also not for women with high blood pressure that medicine can't control or high blood pressure with blood vessel damage, diabetes and over 35 years old, diabetes with high blood pressure or kidney, eye, nerve or blood vessel damage, diabetes for longer than 20 years, certain kinds of severe migraine headaches, liver disease or liver tumors, breast cancer or any cancer that is sensitive to the female hormones estrogen or progesterone, unexplained vaginal bleeding, are allergic to suggesterone acetate, ethanyl estradiol, or any other ingredients in Anavera, or take any hepatitis C drug combination containing ombidesvir, paratoprevir, ritonavir, with or without disabuvir, as this may increase levels of the liver enzyme alanine aminotransferase in the blood. Anavera can cause serious side effects, including blood clots, toxic shock syndrome, liver problems, including liver tumors, high blood pressure, gallbladder problems, changes in the sugar and fat, cholesterol, and triglyceride levels in your blood, headache, irregular or unusual vaginal bleeding and spotting between your menstrual periods, depression, possible cancer in your cervix, swelling of your skin, especially around your mouth, eyes, and in your throat, angioedema, dark patches of skin on your forehead, cheeks, upper lip and chin, cloasma. Call your healthcare provider or get emergency medical care right away if any of these serious side effects occur. The most common side effects reported, and at least 5% of the women who received Anovera, were headaches or migraine, nausea or vomiting, vaginal yeast infection, candiasis, lower and upper abdominal pain, painful periods, vaginal discharge, urinary tract infection, breast pain or tenderness, irregular vaginal bleeding, diarrhea, and genital itching. Anovera is a ring-shaped vaginal system with hormones used by females to prevent pregnancy. Anovera has not been adequately studied in females with a body mass index greater than 29 kilograms per meter squared. The risk information provided here is not complete. To learn more, review the Anovera patient information and talk with your healthcare provider or pharmacist. The FDA-approved product labeling, including patient information, can be found at anovera.com forward slash pi dot pdf. You may also report side effects to the FDA at fda.gov forward slash medwatch or by calling 1-800-FDA-1088. You may also report side effects to Therapeutics MD at 1-888-228-0150.